Section 15 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 11, 1560. The accession of Francis II, husband to the Queen of Scots, to the French throne, had renewed the dangers of Elizabeth from the hostility of France and of Scotland and in the politic resolution of removing from her own territory to that of her enemies the seat of a war which she saw to be inevitable she levied a strong army and sent it under the command of the duke of norfolk and lord grey de wilton to the frontiers of scotland she also entered into a close connection with the protestant party in that country who were already in arms against the queen regent and her french auxiliaries success attended this well-planned expedition and at the end of a single campaign Elizabeth was able to terminate the war by the Treaty of Edinburgh, a convention the terms of which were such as effectually to secure her from all fear of future molestation in this quarter. During the period of these hostilities, however, her situation was an anxious one. It was greatly to be feared that the Emperor and the King of Spain, forgetting in their zeal for the Catholic Church the habitual enmity of the House of Austria against that of Bourbon, would make common cause with France against a sovereign who now stood forth the avowed protectress of Protestantism, and such a combination of the great powers of Europe, seconded by a large Catholic party at home, England was by no means in a condition to withstand. By skilful negotiation it seemed possible to avert these evils, and Elizabeth, by her selection of diplomatic agents on this important occasion, gave striking evidence of her superior judgment. To plead her cause with the King of Spain, she dispatched Anthony Brown, Viscount Montacute, a nobleman who, to the general recommendation of wisdom and experience in public affairs, added the peculiar one, for this service, of a zealous attachment to the Romish faith, proved by his determined opposition in the House of Lords to the Bill of Uniformity lately carried by a great majority. The explanations and arguments of the Viscount prevailed so far with Philip, that he ordered his ambassador at Rome to oppose the endeavours of the French court to prevail on the Pope to fulminate his ecclesiastical censures against Elizabeth. It was found impracticable, however, to bring him to terms of cordial amity with a heretic sovereign whose principles he both detested and dreaded, and by returning some time after the decorations of the Order of the Garter he distinctly intimated to the Queen that motives of policy alone restrained him from becoming her open enemy. For ambassador to the emperor, she made choice, at the recommendation probably of Cecil, of his relation and beloved friend Sir Thomas Chaloner the Elder, a statesman, a soldier, and a man of letters, and in these three characters, so rarely united, one of the distinguished ornaments of his age. He was born in 1515 of a good family in Wales, and being early sent to Cambridge, became known as a very elegant Latin poet, and generally as a young man of the most promising talents. After a short residence at court, his merit caused him to be selected to attend into Germany Sir Henry Knevet, the English ambassador, with a view to his qualifying himself for future diplomatic employment. At the court of Charles V he was received with extraordinary favour, and after waiting upon that monarch in several of his journeys, he was at length induced, by admiration of his character, to accompany him as a volunteer in his rash expedition against Algiers. He was shipwrecked in the storm which almost destroyed the fleet and only escaped drowning by catching in his mouth, as he was struggling with the waves, a cable by which he was drawn up into a ship with the loss of several of his teeth. Returning home, he was made clerk of the council, which office he held during the remainder of Henry's reign. 
early in the next he was distinguished by the protector and having signalized his valour in the battle of pinkey was knighted by him on the field the fall of his patron put a stop to his advancement but he solaced himself under this reverse by the cultivation of literature and a friendship with such men as cook smith cheek and cecil the strictness of his protestant principles rendered his situation under the reign of mary both disagreeable and hazardous and he generally added to its perils by his strenuous exertions in behalf of the unfortunate cheek but the services which he had rendered in edward's time to many of the oppressed catholics now interested their gratitude in his protection and were thus the means of preserving him unhurt for better times soon after his return from his embassy to the emperor ferdinand we find him engaged in a very perplexing and disagreeable mission to the unfriendly court of philip the second where the mortifications which he encountered joined to the insalubrity of the climate so impaired his health that he found himself obliged to solicit his recall which he did in an ovidian elegy addressed to the queen the petition of the poet was granted but too late he sunk under a lingering malady in october fifteen sixty five a few months after his return the poignant grief of cecil for his loss found its best alleviation in the exemplary performance of all the duties of surviving friendship he officiated as chief mourner at his funeral and superintended with solicitude truly paternal the education of his son thomas Shelliner the younger afterwards a distinguished character by his encouragement the latin poems of his friend chiefly consisting of epitaphs and panegyrics on his most celebrated contemporaries were collected and published and it was under his patronage and prefaced by a latin poem from his pen in praise of the author that a new and complete edition appeared of the principal work of this accomplished person a tractate quote, on the right ordering of the english republic end quote, also in latin sir thomas chaloner was the first ambassador named by elizabeth a distinction of which he proved himself highly deserving wisdom and integrity he was already known to possess and in his negotiations with the imperial court where it was his business to draw the bonds of amity as close as should be found practicable without pledging his mistress to the acceptance of the hand of the archduke charles he also manifested a degree of skill and dexterity which drew forth the warmest commendations from elizabeth herself his conduct she said had far exceeded all her expectations of his prudence and abilities this testimony may be allowed to give additional weight to his opinion on a point of great delicacy in the personal conduct of her majesty as well as on some more general questions of policy expressed in a postscript to one of his official letters to secretary cecil the letter it should be observed was written near the close of the year fifteen fifty nine when the favour of the queen to dudley had first become a subject of general remark and before all hopes were lost of her finally closing with the proposals of the archduke Quote, i assure you sir these folks are broad-mouthed where i spake of one too much in favour as they esteem i think you guess whom they named if you do not i will upon my next letters write further to tell you what i conceive as i count the slander most false so a young princess cannot be too wary what countenance or familiar demonstration she maketh more to one than another i judge no man's service in the realm worth the entertainment with such a tale of obloquy or occasion of speech to such men as of evil will are ready to find faults this delay of ripe time for marriage besides the loss of the realm for without posterity of her highness what hope is left unto us ministereth matter to these lewd tongues to descant upon and breatheth contempt i would i had but one hour's talk with you think if i trusted not your good nature i would not write thus much which nevertheless i humbly pray you to reserve as written to yourself consider how you deal now in the emperor's matter much dependeth on it 
here they hang in expectation as men desirous it should go forward but yet they have small hope in mine opinion be it said to you only the affinity is great and honourable the amity necessary to stop and cool many enterprises ye need not fear his greatness should overrule you he is not a philip but better for us than a philip let the time work for scotland as god will for sure the french i believe shall never long enjoy them and when we be stronger and more ready we may yet proceed with that that is yet unripe the time itself will work when our great neighbours fall out next in the meantime settle we things begun and let us arm and fortify our frontiers etc sufficient evidence remains that the sentiments of cecil respecting the queen's behaviour to dudley coincided with those of his friend and that fears for her reputation gave additional urgency about this period to those pleadings in favour of matrimony which her counsel were doomed to press upon her attention so often and so much in vain but a circumstance occurred soon after which totally changed the nature of their apprehensions respecting her future conduct and rendered her anticipated choice of a husband no longer an object of hope and joy but of general dissatisfaction and alarm just when the whispered scandal of the court had apprised him how obvious to all beholders the partiality of his sovereign had become just when her rejection of the proposals of so many foreign princes had confirmed the suspicion that her heart had given itself at home just in short when everything conspired to sanction hopes which under any other circumstances would have appeared no less visionary than presumptuous at the very juncture most favourable to his ambition but most perilous to his reputation lord robert dudley lost his wife and by a fate equally sudden and mysterious this unfortunate lady had been sent by her husband under the conduct of sir richard verney one of his retainers but for what reason or under what pretext does not appear to cumnor house in berkshire a solitary mansion inhabited by anthony foster also a dependent of dudley's and bound to him by particular obligations here she soon after met with her death and verney and foster who appeared to have been alone in the house with her gave out that it happened by an accidental fall downstairs but this account from various causes gained so little credit in the neighbourhood that reports of the most sinister import were quickly propagated these discourses soon reached the ears of thomas lever a prebendary of coventry and a very conscientious person who immediately addressed to the secretaries of state an earnest letter still extant beseeching them to cause strict inquiry to be made into the case as it was commonly believed that the lady had been murdered but he mentioned no particular grounds of this belief and it cannot now be ascertained whether any steps were taken in consequence of his application if there were they certainly produced no satisfactory explanation of the circumstance for not only the popular voice which was ever hostile to dudley continued to accuse him as the contriver of her fate but cecil himself in a memorandum drawn up some years after of reasons against the queen's making him her husband mentions among other objections quote, that he is infamed by the death of his wife end quote. whether the thorough investigation of this matter was evaded by the artifices of dudley or whether his enemies finding it impracticable to bring the crime home to him found it more advisable voluntarily to drop the inquiry certain it is that the queen was never brought in any manner to take cognizance of the affair and that the credit of dudley continued as high with her as ever but in the opinion of the country the favourite passed ever after for a dark designer capable of perpetrating any secret villainy in furtherance of his designs and skilful enough to conceal his atrocity under a cloak of artifice and hypocrisy impervious to the partial eyes of his royal mistress though penetrated by all the world besides 
This idea of his character caused him afterwards to be accused of practising against the lives of several other persons who were observed to perish opportunely for his purposes. Each of these charges will be particularly examined in its proper place, but it ought here to be observed that not one of them appears to be supported by so many circumstances of probability as the first, and even in support of this no direct evidence has ever been adduced. Under all the circumstances of his situation, Dudley could not venture as yet openly to declare himself the suitor of his sovereign, but she doubtless knew how to interpret both the vehemence of his opposition to the pretensions of the Archduke, and the equal vehemence with which those pretensions were supported by an opposite party in her council, of which the Earl of Sussex was the head. Few could yet be persuaded that the avowed determination of the Queen in favour of the single state would prove unalterable. Most, therefore, who observed her averseness to a foreign connection, believed that she was secretly meditating to honour with her hand some subject of her own, who could never have a separate interest from that of his country, and whose gratitude for the splendid distinction would secure to her the possession of his lasting attachment. This idea long served to animate the assiduities of her nobles and courtiers, and two or three besides Dudley were bold enough to publish their pretensions. Secret hopes or wishes were cherished in the bosoms of others and it thus became a fashion to accost her in language where the passionate homage of the lover mingled with the base adulation of the menial. Her personal vanity, triumphant over her good sense and her perceptions of regal dignity, forbade her to discourage a style of address equally disgraceful to those who employed and to her who permitted it. And it was this unfortunate habit of receiving, and at length requiring, a species of flattery which became every year more grossly preposterous, which depraved by degrees her taste, infected her whole disposition, and frequently lent to the wisest sovereign of Europe the disgusting affectation of a heroine of French romance. Tilts and tournaments were still the favoured amusements of all the courts of Europe, and it was in these splendid exhibitions that the rival courtiers of Elizabeth found the happiest occasions of displaying their magnificence, giving proof of their courage and agility, and at the same time insinuating, by a variety of ingenious devices, their hopes and fears, their amorous pains, and their profound devotedness to her service. In the purer ages of chivalry, no other cognizances on shields were adopted, either in war or in these games which were its image, than the armorial bearings which each warrior had derived from his ancestors, or solemnly received at the hands of the heralds before he entered on his first campaign but as the spirit of the original institution declined and the french fashion of gallantry began to be engrafted upon it an innovation had taken place in this matter which is thus commemorated and deplored by the worthy camden clarencieux king-at-arms who treats the subject with a minuteness and solemnity truly professional Quote, whoever says he would note the manners of our progenitors in wearing their coat-armour over their harness and bearing their arms in their shields their banners and pennons and in what formal manner they were made bannerets and had licence to rear their banner of arms, which they presented rolled up unto the prince, who unfolded and re-delivered it with happy wishes. I doubt not but he will judge that our ancestors were as valiant and gallant as they have been since they left off their arms, and used the colours and curtains of their mistress's bed instead of them." The same author afterwards observes that these fopperies, as well as the adoption of impresses, first prevailed in the expedition of Charles the Eighth against Naples in 1494, and that it was about the beginning of the reign of Henry the Eighth that the English wits first thought of imitating the French and Italians in the invention of these devices. An impress, it seems, was an emblematical device assumed at the will of the bearer, and illustrated by a suitable motto, whereas the coat of arms had either no motto or none appropriate. 
of this nature therefore was the representation of an english archer with the words quote, qui adherio praeist and quote, he prevails to whom i adhere used by henry the eighth at his meeting with charles and francis elizabeth delighted in these whimsical inventions camden says that she quote, used upon different occasions so many heroical devices as would require a volume end quote, but most commonly a sieve without a word her favourite mottoes were quote, video tasio end quote, i see and am silent and quote, semper idem end quote, always the same thus patronized the use of impresses became general scarcely a public character of that age whether statesman courtier scholar or soldier was unprovided with some distinction of this nature and at tournaments in particular the combatants all vied with each other in the invention of occasional devices sometimes quaintly sometimes elegantly expressive of their situation or sentiments and for the most part conveying some allusion at once gallant and loyal it may be worth while to cite a few of the most remarkable of these out of a considerable number preserved by camden the prevalence amongst them of astronomical emblems is worthy of observation as indicative of that general belief of the age in the delusions of judicial astrology which rendered its terms familiar alike to the learned the great and the fair a dial with the sun setting quote, Ocasu desinis esse, end quote, thy being ceases with its setting. The sun shining on a bush, quote, si desiris perio, end quote, forsake me and I perish. The sun reflecting his rays from the bearer, quote, quosque avertes, end quote, how long wilt thou avert thy face? Venus in a cloud, quote, salvame domina, end quote, mistress save me. The letter I, quote, omnia ex uno, end quote, all things from one a fallow-field, at quando messis, when will be the harvest, the full moon in heaven, quote, quid sine te quellum, what is heaven without thee? Cynthia, it should be observed, was a favourite fancy-name of the Queen's. She was also designated occasionally by that of Astria, whence the following devices, a man hovering in the air, ferrer ad astrium, I am born to Astria, the zodiac with Virgo rising, quote, jam redit et virgo end quote. the maid returns and a zodiac with no characters but those of leo and virgo quote, his ego presidis end quote, with these to friend a star quote, mihi vita speca virginis end quote, my life is in speca virginis a star in the left hand of virgo so called here the allusion was probably double to the queen and to the horoscope of the bearer the twelve houses of heaven with neither sign nor planet therein, quote, disponi, end quote, dispose. A white shield, quote, fatum inscribat Elisa, end quote. Eliza writes my fate. An eye in a heart, quote, volnus allo, end quote, I feed the wound. A ship sinking and the rainbow appearing, quote, quid tu seperio, end quote, to what avail if I perish? as the rainbow is an emblem seen in several portraits of the queen this device probably reproaches some tardy and ineffectual token of her favour the sun shining on the withered tree which blooms again quote, his radius rediviva veresco these rays revive me a pair of scales fire in one smoke in the other quote, ponderari erari to weigh is to err at one tilt were borne all the following devices which camden particularly recommends to the notice and interpretation of the reader many flies about a candle quote, six splendidiora pentutur thus brighter things are sought drops falling into a fire quote, tamen non extinguenda end quote, 
yet not to be extinguished the sun partly clouded over casting its rays upon a star quote, tantum quantum end quote, as much as is vouchsafed a folded letter quote, lege et relege end quote, read and re-read it would have increased our interest in these very significant impresses if our author could have informed us who were the respective bearers perhaps conjecture would not err in ascribing one of the most expressive to sir william pickering a gentleman whose name has been handed down to posterity as an avowed pretender to the royal marriage that a person illustrious neither by rank nor ancestry and so little known to fame that no other mention of him occurs in the history of the age should ever have been named amongst the suitors of his sovereign is a circumstance which must excite more curiosity than the scanty biographical records of the time will be found capable of satisfying a single paragraph of camden's annals seems to contain nearly all that can now be learned of a man once so remarkable Quote, nor were lovers wanting at home who deluded themselves with vain hopes of obtaining her in marriage namely sir william pickering a man of good family though little wealth and who had obtained reputation by the cultivation of letters by the elegance of his manners and by his embassies to france and germany etc rapin speaks of him as one who was encouraged to hope by some distinguished mark of the queen's favour which he does not however particularize lloyd in his quote unquote, worthies adds nothing to camden's information but the epithet quote unquote, comely applied to his person the vague statement that quote, his embassies in france and germany were so well managed that in king edward's days he was by the council pitched upon as the oracle whereby our agents were to be guided abroad end quote, and a hint that he soon retired from the court of elizabeth to devote himself to his studies the earl of arundel might be the bearer of another of these devices we have already seen with what magnificence of homage this nobleman had endeavoured to bespeak the favourable sentiments of his youthful sovereign and if illustrious ancestry vast possessions established consequence in the state and long experience in public affairs might have sufficed to recommend a subject to her choice none could have advanced fairer pretensions than the representative of the ancient house of fitzalan the advanced age of the earl was indeed an objection of considerable and daily increasing weight he persevered however in his suit notwithstanding the queen's visible preference of dudley and every other circumstance of discouragement till the year fifteen sixty six losing then all hopes of success and becoming sensible at length of pecuniary difficulties from the vast expense which he had lavished on this splendid courtship he solicited the permission of his royal mistress to retire for a time into italy while it lasted however the rivalry of arundel and dudley or rather in the heraldic phraseology of the day that of the white horse and the bear divided the court inflamed the passions of the numerous retainers of the respective candidates and but for the impartial vigilance of cecil might have ended in deeds of blood in the burley papers is a confession of one guntor a servant or retainer of the earl of arundel who was punished for certain rash speeches relative to this competition from which we learn some curious particulars he says that he once fell in talk with a gentleman named cotton who told him that the queen having supped one evening at lord robert dudley's it was dark before she could get away and some servants of the house were sent with torches to light her home that by the way her highness was pleased to enter into conversation with the torch-bearers and was reported to have said that she would make their lord the best that ever was of his name as the father of lord robert was a duke this promise was understood to imply nothing less than her design of marrying him on this gunter answered that he prayed all men might take it well and that no trouble might arise thereof afterwards he said that he thought if a parliament were held some men would recommend lord robert and some his own master to the queen for a husband 
and so it might fortune there would rise some trouble among the noblemen, adding, quote, I trust the white horse will be in quiet, and so shall we be out of trouble. It is well known his blood as yet was never a taint, nor was he ever man of war, wherefore it is likely that we shall sit still. But if he should stomach it, he were able to make a great power." In his zeal for the cause of his lord, he also wished that his rival had been put to death with his father, quote, or that some ruffian would have dispatched him by the way as he hath gone, with some dag, or pistol, or gun, so high did words run on occasion of this great contest. End of section 15